we were climbing up one of the higher mountains. We were behind, we were about 10 teams behind the lead team and they had went up the gully and somebody when they went up the gully had a slip and a fall, they released a rock and the rock came rolling down and all you heard from the top was a scream about that there was a rock coming. But if you can imagine, there's about 50 people looking up at this rock that's just bouncing out of control. Like, I mean, a rock about four times the size of football, just bouncing and everybody just going, rock, rock, rock. And then it just goes, shoots off into the sky. And then there's absolute silence on the mountain because everybody's waiting for the rock to just land and a scream to happen. This is the 20th episode of the Hard as Nails podcast. Thank you for listening and downloading this episode, which is brought to you, as always, by Outsider.ie, Islands Adventure Magazine, and supported by Follow the Camino, the original walking holiday experts. For over a decade now, Follow the Camino has been helping pilgrims to walk, cycle, or horse ride along the famous Camino de Santiago pilgrimage routes in Spain. They create a custom itinerary just for you that includes airport transfers, spectacular combat meals and luggage transfers so that all you have to do is enjoy your adventure to the fullest. Take that first step to the ultimate getaway. Go visit www.followthecamino.com. Follow the Camino, your Camino, your way. Our guest we have the pleasure of chatting to in this episode is an Irish adventure and ultra runner who is constantly pushing his body and mind to the limit on extreme challenges. He and two teammates recently embarked on one of the toughest foot races in Europe, the PTL, which is an epic 300-kilometer running race around Mont Blanc. He's also a family man and he joins us now to tell us more about how he finds time to do all these challenges and some of the experiences he has lived along the way. It's Richard Noonan. Richard, it's a great pleasure to have you on the Hard as Nails podcast. Thank you for joining us. How you doing? I'm doing well, thanks, Richard. Probably a little bit better than you are, having uh, completed the PTL, but we will chat about that a little bit later. Firstly, uh, I'm interested to know, you You know our very first guest we had on this podcast, Ian Keith. You you know each other very well. He's uh, been a big influence on you becoming an adventure and ultra runner. How did this happen? Absolutely. Um, so the gentleman, Ian Keith, yeah, we're uh, good friends for the last 10 years. Um, it's... It's ironic that you talk about Ian. Obviously, I think I crewed Ian when he did his Wicklow Way record 10 years ago. And then I actually ran the Wicklow Way this year in March. And I was going the irony when I actually sat in the car and watched this man go and just kind of went, there's no way I could ever do something like this. And then I found myself 10 years. I actually moved back from um, Qatar, where I kind of lived for a couple of years. And I, I worked in 2008 with Ian. So we became good friends in work and I looked at some of the stuff that he was doing and I was going, I need to do some of that. So we started with the, having lived in the desert, I suppose, for <laughs> four years with no grass. Yeah. Um, he showed me this thing called mountain running in 2008 and um, it started with 10K. It went very quickly from 10K to the, what's it now called, the Morris Mullins, the Wicklow Way mm-hmm. Ultra. I did the Wicklow Way Trail first, the first year in 2009, I did the Ultra in 2010 and then I haven't stopped ultra running and of course at the time he was also doing adventure racing yeah. and I started doing an adventure racing probably in the 2009 uh, mark with some of the kind of more local events mm-hmm. around Blessington with the likes of Sean Murray and Brian Kyo and them mm-hmm. 
And uh, before I knew it, we were at the start line in 2010 for the Terex race as a kind of a trial, which was our first three to four day race. Mm. From then on, it just became a, a constant journey um, into how could we do this better? If we must be, we can get better at this mm. because, you know, it's not just really about having the enjoyable sport, but the, the real nice thing is having lived in the desert for three or four mm. years, I was now getting to see really, really nice parts of the world that you normally wouldn't go for a longer period. So it started becoming a great journey to the outdoors, but mm-hmm. then it became a longer journey in the outdoors and it became more of an endurance event in the yeah. outdoors and it just got better and better. Yeah, amazing. And you mentioned there that you started off doing the 10Ks and was there a definitive <laughs> moment at, uh, for you all, Richard, in which you realized that, you know, I'm better than most when it comes to endurance events and being able to push yourself past the limits than just a, a marathon runner would do? There was. Okay, so I have a, a, sport, a bit of a sporting background. Mm-hmm. I mean, I did kickboxing for quite a long time, yeah. for uh, 15, 20 years. Yeah. So I would have competed internationally there. So I would have won kind of, um, you know, I would have been on the Irish team for a number of years, would have had uh, two European titles um, and WSK. We trained a lot, six mm-hmm. or seven. And I guess the pain thresholds are quite high in kickboxing, but it's more an explosive sport rather than an endurance sport. Mm-hmm. So even my, my endurance in in kickboxing I was always quite good at the running part mm-hmm. um, and I always make a joke but I believe my endurance comes from I used to do a milk run when I was about <laughs> 12 to 16 years of age <laughs> and uh, running around with milk bottles at 4 o'clock in the morning to 5 o'clock on the day on a Saturday is what I really drive my, my endurance from <laughs> so when you combine the endurance and the pain that you got from the kickboxing I mean I was pretty ready to go you know I mean yeah. it was definitely I was I, had, I seemed to have the tools <laughs> so I did the first 10k in the mountains and the second race I ran was 25 sorry it was 21k mm-hmm. in the mountains and somebody said as a joke I should try the marathon for the crack so I think in 2008 I ran the marathon without not a whole lot of training but I managed to do 3.5 three three and a half hours on my first marathon right. without a lot of training so I kind of went okay I'm actually, I actually like this stuff you know mm-hmm. and then I as I said went off into the Wicklow Ultra it just got further and further and further but we went adventure racing 2010 did a long event 2012 and then 2013 was the year I really got stuck in and that mm-hmm. was the year we started the year off nicely with um, the Highland Fling in Scotland and then we went and did we kind of planned the year mm-hmm. and the year that we planned was to kind of do an endurance race every month mm-hmm. um, and you know we had some big races that year so I guess we did the Highland Fling um, did the Rick around with Zoran, who's the guy that the PTL was a month ago. So that's the, that you wear the Wicklow around, that's the 26 peak challenge that you got to do mm. in under 24 hours. Um, so hit that one. Um, then after that, of course, we had the Beast of Ballyhora, which is the 36 hour adventure race. And then eventually it was time for the UTMB, which is the 172 yeah. um, kilometer race with the 10,000 meter climb and that crack so it was a nice build up that year you know so 2013 yeah. was, was was a big year so yeah, yeah. your running career it sounds like it's very much a, it happened in a progressional type of manner and you just did more and more and further and further each time and uh, over the years Richard you've uh, completed many extremely tough races so many it would take me probably the duration of this podcast to list them all one I do want to chat about first is the Beast of Ballyhura this is one of the toughest adventure races and endurance tests out out there in the UK and Ireland. Teams of uh, four, they take on a circuit that often includes uh, 200 kilometers of cycling, 25 kilometers of kayaking, and 25 kilometers of tracking. How many times have you been put through this torturous event, and how would you describe the experience? Okay, so we've done it nine times, I think. Wow. Um, So that's 
quite a number of times. Mm-hmm. I think the first time I did it is, um, was in 2009. Um, so it's changed as uh, over the years. Um, it's been a 36-hour, it's been a 48-hour, and it's been a 72-hour. Wow. Um, the guy that runs it, um, Ivan Park, is a, is a legend of adventure racing in Ireland. Really good guy. Um, you've got uh, Greg Clark, another good guy. You know, I mean, they just run a really... I was really impressed with, with the event, with the layout, with the again the routes that they brought us and the way they just put the events together I mean you're never bored so mm-hmm. it's basically 36 hours 42 or 72 hours of cycling kayaking orienteering you know navigating the whole way through mm-hmm. and you know it's 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 just a really good you know they they do really good races mm-hmm. so what was really brilliant for us is then as we mentioned at the start of the podcast is you know as we got better as adventure racers mm-hmm. um i had the because ian and i were friends then ian started a race with us and ian was already far more experienced as an ultra runner and adventure racer than we were mm-hmm. and i suppose we were very lucky to race together um in ireland in 2016 when the european series came to ireland and we had about 62 teams mm-hmm. and we got third in the european series that year so that was kind of mm-hmm. one of our best so what, what has been fantastic for us is the Beast of Balliora had kind of trained us. We'd done a couple of international races. Like, we were quite lucky. In 2014, we had a team go to the World Championships in Costa Rica. In 2015, we had a team go to Ecuador to do the adventure racing there. Mm-hmm. So then we were primed for, you know, doing the European Series in 2016. So, you know, we beat some good competition there. And just 72 hours is a race yeah. time that we raced very well at, you know. So we did. We had probably an hour and a half sleep over 72 mm-hmm. hours. So multi-day racing is oh. quite a... Is quite a you know, a good strength for us. Two things I suppose that we've learned over the years is that the more races you do, the less stress you get about the races because mm-hmm. it no longer is a question for us on will I complete it? It's how fast will I complete it? Or mm-hmm. I suppose with, when it comes to the beast, it's like, can we win it? Um, mm-hmm. So I think we've been winners for, you know, a couple of years now. Um, so, you know, we're looking at the teams, we're looking at the lineup, but we've got such a, a tight unit now at the team with Ian, Taran and myself and now Tour, we've raced together for a number of years. So, when it comes to an event, we're very smooth. We're in a very efficient unit. Mm-hmm. So even coming right up to the event, we don't have to do a lot of prep training together. We just kind of turn up at the start line and we've got ultimate trust in one another as a team. Mm-hmm. You know, we're used to taking on, like adventure racing is about navigational challenge, you know, logistic challenge, trusting mm-hmm. one another, working one another, getting one another from the start line to the finish line. And we've just become very smooth and slick at that. And that's what helps us race well together. And I suppose that's what keeps us consistent. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to a race for me, I'm quite comfortable coming up to the race mm-hmm. because I know the team will be there and we'll be good. And then it's, you know, we're quite excited because of that then about getting out there mm-hmm. and seeing what the race has to offer. And, you know, when the race has got, you know, such beautiful scenery, you know, such technical scenery or such challenging kind of terrain or challenging you know sections it makes the race move very very quickly and you know before you know it you're at the end reflecting back on some just fantastic mm. fantastic times together yeah which section do you enjoy the most the running cycling or the uh, the kayaking i mean it kind of varies um i uh, the one i hate the most is the kayaking <laughs> but sometimes when you're cycling or running you wish you were sitting down in a kayak yeah um, definitely the definitely the trekking is our strongest and mm. um, so i enjoy that the most i mean you know, we, we when we strategically look at the race, you know, we will purposely, like if we're coming off a bike onto a trek, we will go through a transition so quick and excited and not sleep because we know we're getting onto the hills and we know that's mm-hmm. our strength. 
And, you know, we had that in the European Championships where we were in fifth position with three sections to go and the hill section came next and that's where we overtook and just flew. So trekking definitely is the is the more preferred strength. Hmm. Well, participants are known to at some point face the so-called beast, this meaning they experience hallucinations. Have you ever yeah. come face to face with the beast, Richard? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, sleep deprivation is what you're fighting. Yeah. Like, it's interesting. Like, I suppose what people don't understand in races is that in adventure racing, you know, sleep deprivation can be very hard on the bike because you're going through a emotion that's natural of somebody nearly to be rocked to sleep, yeah. especially in the kayak, and you're fighting that. Like that's the hardest time. Like when you're in a kayak and the boat's moving up and down, and it's like four o'clock in the morning, and you're trying to fight the sleep monsters. Man, you can see lots of different stuff, lots of different stuff. So we've definitely met the beast. I mean, we've got um, we have some interesting stories. Like we have a, I raced a tarn for a long time. And how she deals with her sleep monsters is on the bike as she cycles into the ditch full of nettles and then all the nettle stings on her arms keep her awake so oh, wow. it keeps, keeps her brain occupied <laughs> so it keeps her void from seeing the beast as you say mm-hmm. and enables us to go on. But like as a unit, you know, because we've raced together for so long, if somebody's feeling sleep deprivation, you know, we have ways and tricks kind of working and talking mm-hmm. to one another to distract them. And that's part of our race strategy is if somebody's feeling that they're going to bonk basically for want of another word, yeah. you know, they'll man up and say, look, guys, I'm really suffering here and we need to make a decision that on the spot whether we can distract them or whether we take a 15-minute power nap and, you know, get through that sleep deprivation period of any part of a race, you know. Mm-hmm. So we, we try and do that only at night time so that, you know, because, you know, the body is a great natural recovery agent that if you do it like kind of, I'd say around four or five o'clock in the morning, just before you can hit sunrise, it's mm-hmm. amazing how the body thinks it's had a whole night's sleep <laughs> and, you know, you, you, you can drive through the next day and you think that you had a whole night's sleep. So. Wow. We, we have ways of managing them. Yeah. I mean, some teams are better than others at doing it. Um, but I think that comes from, you know, experience of racing, experience of multi-day racing. Mm-hmm. I think the more you do, the more you understand yeah. sleep deprivation and the better you can deal with it, you know. Wow. And you'd be surprised. Like, the less sleep depri- deprived you are, the more your head stays in the race. Mm-hmm. And the longer your head stays in the race, the better you do. Because yeah. a lot of the races that we do, like, I mean, people will tell you for a lot of the races that we've done, I think even the UTMB itself and even at the longer adventure races, we picked up so many places kind of over the last day or two or the last 30, 40 kilometers mm. because we keep we, we just we race to keep our head in the game, you know, and that's the way we race. Wow. Interesting approach. And you've caught my curiosity there. And I'm sure our listeners would like to hear about uh, some of the hallucinations that you personally have uh, come across while on this uh, epic adventure race. Well, I suppose buildings are always melting into one another or I suppose the the more daytime one is the lines just move off the road and jump over hedges and stuff so Mm -hmm. the lines just disappear all over the road Um, that's probably the worst one because when you can't control the lines in the road and you're on a bike Mm -hmm. it's you can end up in a ditch very very quickly so you know you you just lose focus (laughs) so I mean you can you can see lots of creatures and goblins and <laughs> crazy stuff depending on what you've been reading or looking at okay. <laughs> the week before yeah. um, but I haven't really kind of I haven't really sat down and looked at a dragon in the eyes or anything and we've had conversations yeah. but I have I have like one of the things I struggled with and um, actually in the in the PTL that I was laughing at is that I couldn't work out whether my voice was was I talking to myself on the inside or was I talking to myself on the outside? And I struggled this for a long time. Yeah. Wow. Well, Richard, now when you're dealing with adventure races that stretch over days, how do you go about training for such a challenge? I think the key for doing the races over long periods is 
you need to get into a habit of doing something every day okay. for a long period. Mm. So you try and do kayaking, running or biking every day and you just make sure that you do those back to back over a 30 day period. Mm-hmm. And what that gives you is kind of the endurance level for when you swip, switch sport from running to biking to kayaking that your body is used to making the change. So trying to keep, you know, just trying to keep everything going mm-hmm. can be quite difficult. Mm. But I mean, don't let any discipline kind of diminish like you know always make time for kayaking mm-hmm. you know always make time for biking and always make time for running mm-hmm. and they are they do transfer from one to the other so most of our running would be done in the hills mm-hmm. very little on the road but the biking i would bike in and out of work you know is is very useful because you're trying mm-hmm. to save time so you know you do 20 40 50k mm-hmm. a day um and you just keep that consistency and then that mm-hmm. consistency evolves into the race and then you find that consistency happens because in, a, in an adventure race you're not running you know, you're not doing 33, 35 minute 10Ks, you're, mm. you slow down to a natural speed and that natural speed is built from the consistency of your training. Mm. Well, speaking about how you train yourself physically and you also mentioned talking about uh, training your brain, if you want to call it that, uh, trying to repress mm-hmm. those hallucinations, that touches on both the physical and mental battles that you'll often have to deal with on these uh, adventures. Which one do you find the most difficult though to overcome? Um, definitely the physical. Okay. I, I think I'm mentally strong person and um, I don't struggle too much with the mental um, there's more important things to worry about like eating I suppose mm-hmm. is, a, is a big thing yeah. um, the ability over a long race to be able to keep eating and to keep having fluids is quite a, a difficult and underestimated thing to do mm-hmm. so it's trying to keep the nutrition up is probably the most difficult thing and then the other thing would be trying to manage your feet so believe it or not, feet are a very critical part of yeah. adventure racing. And, you know, we've got quite good at that over the years. But the the eating is definitely something that still needs to be mastered, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, many of these endurance races, Richard, that uh, you have competed, uh, uh, they've done as a team. How does that help you on a psychological level, knowing that what you're going through, your teammates are most likely also experiencing? Yeah, I mean, it's psychologically a lot better um, when you're racing as a team because you feel you have the comfort of a team around you which Mm -hmm. is kind of more you can map I suppose more directly to your normal surroundings and I think that's what builds the the comfort level for you and Mm -hmm. it's good to have the camaraderie out in the hills and it's good to have somebody to look at or talk to or chat to Mm -hmm. Um, I think what you'd be surprised is that the biggest benefit is that it keeps the forward movement at a higher intensity than it would if you're on your own Mm -hmm. I think if you're on your own you know, there is the, would you keep going or would you sit down or yeah. would you may, you know, whereas when you're in a team, you're all moving wonder along the whole time. You're drafting, you're moving, you're thinking, you're talking. And, you know, when you're looking at somebody moving, just like in a race, an individual race, it always inspires you or, you know, cohesive you to move on further and further. Yeah. So you, you kind of keep with the team as opposed to, and I, and I suppose the other thing then with the team is you always have, I mean, we work very well collectively as a team. Mm. We never really have to get into the weight distribution, but if somebody is feeling weak, you know, you can take some, say, some other bag for them mm-hmm. or, you know, we're very good at kind of reminding one another to eat or drink or keeping an eye on one another or just having a, a nonsense conversation to keep somebody awake you know i mean that they're very important things to be able to do for one another you know so is there never a concern that you might have you you might be feeling tired or 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 whatever the case may be and you think to yourself well i don't want to let my teammates down i don't want to mention anything is is, does that ever creep in at all oh yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. i mean you can be absolutely wrecked but like you kind of can tell from people's demeanor you know, when people have been quiet for a long period, mm-hmm. you kind of know they're suffering. Mm-hmm. And I suppose from, from me as a, 
like I suppose for me my role in the team is more logistics rather than navigating mm-hmm. so you're kind of touching and feeling the team to make sure everybody's okay the whole time mm-hmm. um, and you know people when you race I suppose on the same team at a, at a good level you know you just put your hand up and you kind of go like it's better for the team mm-hmm. that you tell people that you're feeling poorly because only then can they help you and you can help you to help yourself and sometimes even just to say that out loud stop you from dwelling on it and therefore before you even realize it you're moving down a hill like i've been on the top of a mountain suffering and dying and just turning around to ian going jesus man i'm wrecked and he would go here take these eight jelly beans (laughs) (laughs) i'd put them in my mouth and then i'd run down the hill at top speed but it's only because i've said it out loud he's given me something that i think will re-engage my brain and i'm running at fucking fat race speed down the hill and it's because you know you've kind of just said it and there it is and it's out let's do it yeah fascinating let's go back now just quickly uh, richard talking about the sleep deprivation that uh, you experience in, in endurance races is this something you can actually train for or is it something that it pops up in the race and you've got to deal with it there and then so there's a bit of both i mean i do think it's something that you can train for mentally it definitely comes from experience yeah. i mean there's a certain feeling that you get in sleep deprivation that if you it kicks off i suppose it kicks off something in the body like if you if you're racing between one and four a.m mm-hmm. you know that's a time in your head that you should be asleep so when you get sleep deprivation between those hours you know you start to tell the brain look you're only feeling this because it's you, you need your blanket time it's mm-hmm. between one and four you'd normally be asleep just hang in there till the brightness comes when the brightness comes you'll kick back in and you know mentally you can keep telling yourself that and believe it because you've done mm-hmm. it before mm-hmm. whereas i think if you're kind of out there for the first time and you start to get tired you're like going oh sweet lord i'm tired mm-hmm. <laughs> i need to go to sleep where's my bed i should be in bed shouldn't i i should be in bed guys we, yeah. we should be in bed you know it's 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 just that kind of dynamic and trying to be able to mentally deal with that i suppose yeah fascinating now not that long ago, just last month, in fact, uh, Richard, you embarked on one of the toughest foot races in Europe, the PTL, which uh, I mentioned at the start. What was it about this mammoth event that attracted you to want to do it? And could you just explain to our listeners a bit more how this race uh, works? So the, the PTL, the Petit Trot de Lyon, as it is called. I mean, it's one of the few mountain races in Europe whose distance is over 300 kilometers. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose that's one aspect, but I guess the other aspect is it's about two thousand nine hundred, about thirty thousand meters climb, um, and you get a hundred and fifty hours to complete it, basically. So when I say complete it, okay, on on the surface you kind of go, you know, you it's a two or three person event. It's up mm-hmm. to yourself. So we chose to be a three person event, mm-hmm. um, and what happens is. It's divided into kind of 20 maps mm-hmm. um, and you get three separate GPS downloads and you put them onto your GPS and basically it starts in Chamonix and it's kind of starts on the Monday morning and they wave goodbye and uh, you're told we'll see you, you know, come back in 152 hours and, mm-hmm. and you're laughing because they tell you stuff like, um, please, if you're coming in and the UTMB race is finishing and the winner is coming in, don't get in his way. <laughs> Step to the side and let him pass, you know, because you're going to be moving very slow and he's going to be doing a sprint finish. So you're having, it's not fair to give you pictures of Killian Journey passing you when you haven't even started the race, you know. Yeah. So, um, But it's quite funny from that side. But it's quite like, um, I mean, we took it on because we knew it was the toughest. Um, I've done the Tour de Gaunt before. Tour de Gaunt is similar, 330, 30,000 meter climb. Mm-hmm. But the difference is with Tour de Gaunt, there's uh, multiple spacious feed stations and sleep stations mm-hmm. and it's all marked so not only is it all marked but there's also places to put your foot the whole time so it's 
you know, there's a path for a lot of it. Okay, there's some bolder sections, there's some crazy sections, but I guess it's a path in comparison to what you get in PTL. So what's really nice in PTL is they give you a selection of 20 to 30 maps, and what you can see immediately from the maps is they put three color codes on the routes. So there's a yellow, a black, and a red. Mm-hmm. So what you know is red, there could be a path. Yellow, there's def- there's there's not a path, and it's technically difficult. Mm-hmm. And black, it's like there's no path. There's going to be chains or ropes or something, and it's going to be, you know, you're going to be scrambling. Mm. So when you look at the maps and you look at where you are, um, while at the start of the race, you kind of go, well, okay, it's the climb I need to worry about. Mm-hmm. But then as the race progresses, it's actually, okay, are we going to be on a yellow or a red or a black route? Okay, because the GPS doesn't tell you mm. what the difficult terrain is ahead of you. Mm. So I suppose when you're looking at 300 kilometers, you, the race kind of starts off nicely in the town and it's the same exit. I think it exits off to Last of the Mohicans as opposed mm-hmm. to... Um, <laughs> Which which is a song, unfortunately, kind of stays in your head for the rest of the race, as yeah. opposed to the flight of the flight of the eagles. Mm-hmm. But um, it starts off pretty quick. There's a sprint out of the town, and people are running up the hills, and then before you know it, you're doing a vertical climb of four kilometers up to about two thousand seven hundred meters. Wow. So that's a nice start to you know mm. a long race. Yeah. And I suppose what people don't realize is it's one thing that you've got to do this you know over six days, but you've got to carry a quite a sizable pack on your mm. back which is about I don't know 8 to 10 kilos <laughs> you know it's it's a bit different in terms of you know they're going to put a route out for you that you're not going to forget mm-hmm. um, you're not going to be walking around um, I suppose tourist trails <laughs> um, they, I mean as I said the key difference is you know it's unmarked you're moving with your GPS mm-hmm. um, and I think one of the things that you underestimate when you take on a race like this is that you have to watch every footfall mm-hmm. you know when you run down a road your brain doesn't look at the ground but when you're in the PTL you have to look at the ground the whole time yeah. which makes you tired very 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 quickly mm-hmm. which you which you don't realise and I suppose the second thing is we didn't have the glory of feed stations <laughs> as you do in a marathon or feed stations in the PTL mm-hmm. so you're self-sufficient in terms of you need to carry your food but you do see um, six refuges over the six days mm-hmm. and you do see a bag twice during the race so you have a full change of clothes at 100 kilometers okay. and 200 kilometers which kind of sounds okay but it's 100 kilometers with 10,000 meter climb mm-hmm. and it's 100 kilometers another 10,000 meter climb so mm-hmm. you know there's, there's a lot to be considered yeah well your description of the PTL it sounds very simple and straightforward it's anything but that and you mentioned there that uh, some 30,000 meters of climbing how do you go about preparing for that in Ireland, it's quite hard, being honest. Yeah. Um, like the the best training routes that you have would be the Moor Mountains, mm-hmm. so you can climb up and down Donard and you know Canada a couple of times. Um, a place that we never got to was actually over to kind of the Twelve Bends, over way out in west, over to Connemara, which would be much better because the ground is so rough mm-hmm. in the PTL. Some place like Connemara, we have all that scree and rock actually made a lot more sense. So mm. I definitely, if I was going, you know, going back to the PTL, you need to go and take a couple of trips over there mm. um, and get those sharp climbs in because that that's what you need to do. Mm. Sharp climbs. It's all about, yeah. and it's not even with the climbs, it's about the descent. Yeah. But the thing that really, the thing that puts us really in the back foot in Ireland is the altitude. Like mm. the first peak that we went to was 2,700 meters, 3,000 meters almost. Mm-hmm. And when you go up, you know, a four kilometer vertical to 4,000 meters, the altitude kicked the life out of us. I mean, we were like, 
the our heads were gone, our lungs, our hearts were racing, and I was like, "What the hell is wrong with us? We're just going up a climb, you know." Yeah. And it's got a couple of, but I mean, the PTL is cheeky because what they do is with you is that they they make you climb up these mountains, and it looks really nice, and you know there might be something on top, and then you get to the peak, and you say, "Okay, well, how are we going to descend down off this?" The next thing you look, and there's just a rope or a chain, and you've got to descend down, you know. Tie, tie yourself into a chain or a rope and descend mm. down a straight vertical on the other side and you get to climb again and again and then again and again and, 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 and on it continues you know I mean there's just so much climbing it's incredible <laughs> wow and now heading into the PTO what what was the one thing that you were most worried about you and your teammates the time okay. really because it, it's so technical you know we kind of wondered would we be able to cover the technical ground mm. in the time that was allocated like it sounds like a lot 152 hours but I guess when you start breaking it down and looking at the time, we were just worried, you know, would we have enough time to, to close it out? We did kind of go conservatively out because mm-hmm. um, the second concern for us was there was a, a large climbing section where we needed helmets and harnesses and to be clipped on. Um, and we knew that was on the Wednesday. Mm. So they had kind of warned us, you know, to make sure that we hit the that period out of Valverde for Wednesday just to make sure that when we got into Valverde that we had brightness so we were kind of concerned you know mm-hmm. probably over the first 100 and 110 kr that we would give us make that on the wednesday and that we'd get the climbing done and mm-hmm. that we would not mess it up basically or not spend too much time on it mm-hmm. because if it was in the dark we could have spent hours there <laughs> so luckily we got there on the brightness center on the wednesday and, and shot through it so we were, we were pretty happy in the end yeah now because this is a timed event richard with the cut off points along the way what sort of strategy did you and your team come up with in order to manage your food your sleep and so on so the strategy that we kind of picked was we would go on field, but we reckoned two hours sleep per night would kind of cut it. Mm-hmm. So we kind of reckoned if we did, if we tried two hours first night, when we initially went out, we were talking of doing no sleep the first night mm-hmm. um, and then kind of doing two or three hours, depending on feel as it went on. But mm-hmm. the altitude kicked us around the place so much yeah. on the first night. Actually, after 17 hours of racing, we felt it was a good idea to put our head down for two hours. Mm-hmm. And on the second night, we, we planned always to sleep the second night because we wanted to have our heads in good shape to do all the climbing. Mm-hmm. And then once we finished the climbing, the strategy was just go on feel, but we were hoping for two hours um, a night. However, what we didn't realize is that the refuges were really small because I guess we, I kind of felt that the refuges would be a bit like we had experienced in Tour de Gant. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't realize some of them would have limitations that you could only sleep for an hour and a half in them. Yeah. Um, and then we had another refuge that, because when the storm came in, got so packed, there was actually no beds at all. So mm-hmm. we wow. had to just sleep on tables. So, so you know, some of that went out the window, but mm-hmm. you know, we made up for it later on. The initial strategy, yeah, we kind of said two or three hours a night and mm-hmm. see how we go then, you know. All right. Now, when it comes to grueling events like the PTL, I mean, you, you're most likely going to face a few dark moments along the way. How do you manage these and what do you tell yourself to, to get back on track? Yeah, you feel dark moments. And the thing, <laughs> the thing is you're feeling dark moments with other people, yeah. right? So you're <laughs> kind of like going, you really, like the whole thing about the PTL is when you talk about dark moments, it's like, you have to nav, right? You have mm-hmm. to navigate. You have to find paths. And, you know, you're wondering sometimes is the top of the mountain ever going to come? Yeah. Um, so, like, for example, we were going to, I think it was um, the Grand Mount, and we were really, really, really tired. I mean, we were probably 180K in, three days in, and we were just not able to find a way up this mountain. We just couldn't find a path, and there was huge boulders. Mm-hmm. And we just knew 
we were all over the shop that you know we were we were looking at the gps we were wavering from side to side we were like going that's not the way is this the way there must be another way and you're kind of looking around to see if you can see other teams headlights and mm. we just made a call saying look guys this is brutal let's just take out the shelter sleep for 20 minutes and see if we wake up after 20 minutes if we can find a path mm-hmm. so we just kind of there and then three of us under the shelter put the alarm on slept for 20 minutes woke mm-hmm. up put the head torches back on and what was right below us the path so we were clearly in a dark place yeah. totally sleep deprived mm-hmm. 20 minutes and then we flew straight back up the mountain mm-hmm. you know in really high spirits like so yeah. when you're in a dark moment you got to kind of have a conversation with the team make a decision what you're going to do mm-hmm. um, and just agree to it you know yeah, yeah. I mean there was times when there was a place where the guys felt it would have been a place for us to sleep but there were so many people there, you knew that you weren't going to sleep. So, mm. you know, we made some smart decisions to kind of move through the transitions about mm. 800 metres up the up the road where it'd be total silence and then mm. we'd drop and get asleep, you know. Mm. So that can be, that sounds easy, <laughs> but when you're looking at loads of people and there's a kettle there mm. and you're going like, no, it's going to be better here, man. Look, everybody's doing it. It's, a, it's <laughs> such a hard thing to kind of convince your team going, no, guys, honestly, let's get up the road, mm. get to sleep and then we move on, you yeah. know. Well, Richard, it doesn't always go according to plan and you, you, you're forced to sometimes pull out of races or you don't get to finish them or reach the finish uh, uh, cut-off time. Yeah. It doesn't happen that often to you, but when it does, what do you take away from those moments? Be honest, we had a pretty close one in this race. Okay, we were two days in, probably on the third day. Um, we had a huge storm come in across the glaciers and I've never really been on a a glacier mountains where uh, hailstone and rain mm. came out of probably nowhere mm-hmm. and you know the the water just came down so heavy and flooded everywhere so quickly the what were little streams became waterfalls in a very short time mm. and it was very hard for us to do crossings so what we started to do was get our sticks and our bodies mm. and just build human chains across gullies to try and get ourselves across the water mm. so as we were moving across um, one of the gullies we looked down and we could see a team ahead of us. And actually the girl on the team slipped and she traveled about 150 to 60 meters down the gully. But Whoa. luckily for her, the lower stone cluster broke her fall. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, like these peaks, we were at 2,500 meters with, you know, one, one kilometer of sheer drops on either side yeah. of the mountain going up to uh, Refuge Blanc. And, you know, we in, in this race, you have to stop, right? So if you see a team that are partic- potentially severely injured mm-hmm. you have to stop and help them so we made the decision there and then that tour on our team you know he went to her um she rolled herself over i mean she'd obviously you know she'd a fractured femur fractured a hip she cut her head right open wow. obviously she traveled quite a lot over rocks mm-hmm. she herself admittedly thought she was dead basically because she was quite you know once she slipped and went she thought that was it she was mm-hmm. gonna go so luckily she got caught but where i was kind of going to was because we had to stop and rescue um, it took quite a, a long time yeah. to keep wrapping her up, trying to make sure she didn't get hypothermic. You know, mm. we had to make sure that she was kept conscious, kept talking to her. And at the same time, we then made a decision to move on to the refuge so that we could either send back medical help. Mm-hmm. But when you're racing like this, you have the um, trackers on your bag yes. so you can yeah. hit the alert straight off. So mm. they would flag the HQ automatically, so they would normally then try and make contact. But because it was so, the rain was so heavy, we couldn't hear the contact coming through the phone. So mm. eventually, the search and rescue came down from the refuge, obviously then back down to help her. Mm-hmm. But because Tour had stayed there with them, he was 
you know, we were all taking off layers and giving them to the cause, so to speak, mm -hmm. just so that we could keep the girl warm. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we thought we were going to be out of the race because obviously if he had spent four or five hours down with the girl, mm -hmm. keeping her wrapped up, that he himself would become hypothermic or lose all his energy. So by the time he would come back to us, we fully expected that, you know, yeah, grand. Mm -hmm. We were having a chat about, do we continue on as two or, you know, do we go a tour and get moved off the mountain? Mm -hmm. And we kind of thought it was race over. So... The, the positive outside of that story was mm. the helicopter came eventually, mm -hmm. um, which is quite interesting because they had to tie it on everything. You, you don't realize that when a helicopter comes in, you have to throw away your sticks and throw away bits and pieces. So when the propeller rotates, yes, that yes. nobody gets stabbed with a with a stick. Yeah. But um, they basically were managed to pull the, the, the French girl up into the helicopter, mm -hmm. allowed Tour to move on. So he was with us within 40 minutes of the helicopter exiting. And, mm -hmm. you know, we put him down, changed, shuffled the, the kind of spare clothes around. Two hours, basically, he got some sleep in a bed and then we did move on so i think we went from about 32nd 30th position down to about 64th in that time mm -hmm. and then but on fairness there was never a conversation once tour yeah. came back that we were out of the race we just moved on as normal mm -hmm. you know whatever position we were on we just looked at the next timeline felt we could make it and then you know we had to race the whole race then to make those timelines and that's why we actually ended up finishing mm -hmm. at about uh, 4 30 on the sunday which mm -hmm. is only about two to three hours ahead of the cutoff mm -hmm. is because we kind of lost a couple of hours and lost some energy, but, mm -hmm. you know, on we went. So yeah. so we, we we just made it. I know we do kind of tend to finish these races a lot, mm -hmm. but um, things can go horribly wrong sometimes. Yeah. And luckily for us, it wasn't for us this time, but the poor girl, she got an awful shock. Yeah, wow. What an incredible experience. Well, Richard, as I mentioned, uh, you, you have a family. How difficult is it for you to fit in training for all these events while also spending time with them and, 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 and obviously having to work? That work thing, always getting in the way. <laughs> the family are great. Okay. Um, have, I have a very understanding wife, as everybody else tells me. Mm -hmm. um, I think my girls have kind of just grown up used to it. I mean, they're young enough that, um, you know, they, they still understand. I'm, I try to fit in the training, I suppose, before they're up. Mm -hmm. um, on saying that, I do take them to awesome walls and take them climbing and take them biking and take them running and take them kayaking when I can. Mm -hmm. So I try to make them kind of part of it so i think it's important that they become part of it so they realize that this is kind of more a lifestyle than a yeah. than a sport mm -hmm. um and i think that's been very helpful my kids love the outdoors mm -hmm. um, my wife's canadian so they, they they love going to canada they love the mountains and um hopefully that they'll they'll grow into yeah. doing things like that in their later years mm -hmm. wonderful and how does your wife feel about you doing some of these challenges you know you mentioned the the woman that you helped on the PTL. That could very easily happen to you. How do you weigh up all these risks involved? To be honest, I don't really ever think about them. Okay. To be honest, um, I mean, I think we've done some we've done some odd races. Like, I mean, we did um, we did a race in Costa Rica at the World Championships in mm -hmm. 2014, where the race started by them in the briefing showing us 220 different types of venomous snakes hmm. and then kind of explained to us, you know, how we had, you know, how we would be able to get them away. And okay. then they gave us, you know, um, needles to inject uh, adrenaline into us in case anything did happen. Mm -hmm. And none of that kind of phases you. I think you just kind of always think it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing is like, because of all the races, I suppose, and the experience and, and I think tour, you know, with this girl is a perfect example is that mm -hmm. we seem to have, like, you know, to do our races, firstly, we have to be certified in first aid, we have to be certified mm -hmm. in, you know, mountain climbing, we have to be certified in, so there is, there is things that we do to look after ourselves. Okay. So, you know, I think we would be pretty good at assessing risk. Um, I don't think, 
you know, that we're nuts, that we just cycle off cliffs or do anything. I think we're good at assessing risk, and I think that's what mm-hmm. kind of keeps us, you know, together as a team and mm-hmm. keeps us keeps us moving. Mm-hmm. Um, there was actually a very interesting one in the PTL that was quite scary um, because it was kind of one of those unpredictable ones where we were climbing up one of the higher, higher mountains, mm-hmm. and um, we were behind. We were about 10 teams behind the lead team, and they had went up the gully, and somebody, when they went up the gully, had a slip and a fall, mm-hmm. and when they had a slip and a fall, they released a rock, and the rock came rolling down towards, yeah. and all you heard from the top was a scream about that there was a rock coming. But if you can imagine, mm-hmm. there's about, say, 50 people looking up at this rock that's just bouncing out of control. Like, yeah. I mean, a rock about four times the size of a football, sure. just bouncing, and everybody just going, rock, rock, mm-hmm. rock, and then it just goes, shoots off into the sky, and then there's absolute silence on the mountain because everybody's waiting for the rock to just land and a scream to happen. Mm-hmm. And there's about silence for two minutes. You're just kind of going, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. And then everybody just goes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody gets hurt. And which is all like, you know, fantastic at the time. And it's yeah. a big relief for everybody. But you just kind of go, oh, sweet Lord. It yeah. could have been that simple. You know, mm-hmm. a fucking rock coming yeah. from nowhere yes. could just take you out and you're gone, you know. Yeah. So that was an interesting experience, and and you can tell that's what the two mon- two minutes was for because mm-hmm. everybody was thinking the same thing, going, "Oh my God, that rock could have taken me out, and where the hell did that rock go?" And then of course we all got on with the race, but it was just like it was it was just one of those moments that kind of makes you feel going, "Oh God, yeah." I mean, accidents do happen on races, mm-hmm. but I mean, look, it's very seldom, you know. Yeah. And uh, you'd be so disappointed to get knocked down by a, a drunken driver in the morning, yeah. you know, having done all those races. You know? mm. <laughs> when you put it like that, it makes a actual sense that you want to try block out those thoughts because, you know, you could get hit walking down the street by a car, as you Absolutely. mentioned. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, finally, Richard, what's the next big race out there that you're busy working towards after the PTL? And is there one event out there, perhaps uh, in another country or another continent, you hope to take on in the future? There's a couple out there, I mean, that would probably have a look at. Um, very, very disappointed to be missing the um, the World Championships and Adventure Racing on Union Island. So that would have been pretty awesome. So we'll have to have a look around. We've, we've, we have a couple of things up our sleeve. We may go back to the PTL next year mm-hmm. um, and, you know, actually probably get, give a better cut. We've learned a lot now, so mm-hmm. do, we, do we put that to practice? We'll have to see. Um, obviously, the Beast of Ballyhora will return next year um, up in Donegal around that area is where it seems to be. So we were sad to miss that this year. So we'll get back to that next year, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And maybe the spine in the UK in January is something we'll have a look at, but we'll see. Yeah, all in good time. Well, Richard, congratulations on your accomplishment at the PTL. And thank you for taking the time to share your experiences as an adventurer and ultra runner on the Hardest Nails podcast. No problem. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time today, Kevin.